Welcome back, everybody, to the first full episode of The Movie Mindset. Uh, Just a quick disclaimer before we start. This is not a spoiler-free podcast. So if you haven't already, which I assume you will for this film at least, um, I would encourage you to go back and watch the film before you come uh, and listen to the episode. I'm Abby, your completely unqualified host, and today we are talking about the film The Princess Bride. I love this movie. I love this movie so much, which is partially the reason that I chose it. Um, And the other reason is because I feel like everyone else loves this movie too. I mean, personally, I've never met someone who doesn't enjoy this movie. Um, If you do, like, if you dislike this movie for some reason, please DM me on Instagram or leave a comment on the YouTube video because I I just, I need to know. Because, um, like I said, I've never met someone who who doesn't enjoy it. Um, it's completely ridiculous. It has something for everyone. And it also pretty much defined the entire fantasy genre, um, as well as kind of the romance genre of of the film industry. Um, so with all that being said, let's let's jump into a few fast facts about the movie. Um, it came out in 1987, which um, is, I mean, it's fairly old for like a, to be, to be considered a, I, I guess it's kind of new to be considered a classic film. Um, a lot of classic films are, you know, they're black and white or they're in the 60s or um, something like that. So it's, it's fairly new to be like such a fan favorite, at least in in my opinion, um, in the whole world of film. Um, let's see, straight from Wikipedia, here's a quick little synopsis. Uh, it's adapted by William Goldman from his 1973 novel of the same name, The Princess Bride, and it tells the story of a farmhand named Wesley. Quick side note, his name is Westley, like W-E-S-T. L-E-Y, which I always thought it was Wesley, so news news to me. Um, farmhand named Wesley, accompanied by companions befriended along the way, who must rescue his true love, Princess Buttercup, from the odious Prince Humperdinck. Um, so there's your quick your quick synopsis. Um, I was also going to say that I, I've never read the book, The Princess Bride, um, so if I'm not going to be relating it to the book or talking about book to movie adaptations um because i haven't read it i assume though it's going to be pretty similar uh to the book seeing as how it was adapted the screenplay was adapted straight from the author william goldman himself um so that's definitely a topic for uh, a later episode um the it was directed and co-produced by rob rob rayner starring carrie elwes robin wright mandy patinkin chris sarandon wallace sean Andre the Giant, and Christopher Guest. Most of it was filmed in England. Um, Actually, all of it was filmed in England except for the Cliffs of Insanity, which were filmed in Ireland. Uh, So that's a fun fact. This film has also not won any awards, which I thought was very interesting. It got nominated for a few, um, but never won any. So despite having a a, a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, didn't win any awards, um, so I thought that was a little fun fact. It was a moderate box office success, didn't like blow anything out of the water, um, but it really became successful when it was released to home video and to DVD and stuff like that, which 
um, you'll actually notice is a very common theme with a lot of classic movies is that they don't do well in theaters, but as soon as they're made free, <laughs> um, everyone everyone starts to love them, which I think is pretty telling for you know us us cheap people who don't like to go pay for movies. So let's let's jump into the film, shall we? Now that all the fast facts are out of the way, it opens with a kid who is just credited as the grandson. Um, he has no name, so we'll just be calling him the grandson for now. Um, but it opens with the grandson. He's sick and he doesn't um, he doesn't want to do anything except play video games. But his grandpa comes in and decides to read him a story, which is the Princess Bride. Already. This is a genius, a genius setup, and I'll tell you why. Um, there's this trope, I guess you could call it, in film called the audience surrogate. Um, the audience surrogate is basically, it's the voice of the audience. It's a character who is the voice of the audience, who thinks the same as the audience, or who is um, from the point of view as the audience. and. The audience surrogate is really important for a lot of films because without it, we would have no one to relate to as the viewer or as the reader of a book. Um, so I thought, like, because this is a fantasy novel, which is so ridiculous and none of it, absolutely none of it could exist in our real world, I think having an audience surrogate like the grandson who says the things that we're all thinking or who is experiencing the same emotions that we are is just an absolutely genius way of telling the story in my mind. Um, some other examples of an audience surrogate would be like John Watson from um, Sherlock Holmes or even Harry Potter um, in Harry Potter, kind of because we're from his point of view, we, we can relate to Harry growing up with him, all that good stuff. So I I mean, I love the, the grandson part. He says the things that we're all thinking like oh no this is a kissing book and you know all, all that stuff as well um so then we get to enter the story which i mean this is such a character driven story at least how they convey it in the movie there's they give us no world building absolutely zero context for anything um the only character whose backstory we get to know is is inigo we the main two characters we have nothing, nothing about their story except from where it starts. But I think that's the beauty of this film is that we don't need it. Like we don't need all the backstory and all of the context of the film to understand who these characters are um, and to enjoy it as well. So obviously, you know, the two characters are in love and that's, I mean, I, I guess the main genre of this film is romance technically. I think Wikipedia said it's a right. It's a fantasy romance. Um, you could also probably call it an action, a comedy, maybe a comedy drama, um, a family movie. I don't know. It that's I think my favorite part about this film is that it's so many different genres, um, and somehow it nails every single one of them. Um, when we get introduced to the other the other side characters who. You know, we think are the villain at the very start. Um, Vincini, Inigo, and Fezzik. We think they're all the villains, but in, in reality, only one is a villain character. Everyone else would be considered just side characters. Um, but immediately is when we're introduced to them in the first scene, 
we know so much about their character, you know. Vincini is obviously he's completely uncaring. Um, he's unfeeling, he's selfish, he's arrogant, he's just flat out mean. Um, so we're already set up to not like Vincini, but even though we're told that Fezzik and Inigo are on the bad side, we're already set up to love them. Fezzik shows that he's humble and kind and caring and thoughtful from the very start. Inigo shows to be honorable and respectful and loving and honest, um, all in all in the first the first scene of the movie where we see them but also throughout the entire film so um buttercup is captured we go to the cliffs of insanity which i love the name the cliffs of insanity again it just plays into the whole silliness of the film um and we get to really explore um, Inigo's character when we hear his entire backstory, but we also get to hear Wesley really talk for the first time um, as well. And I, I love how their characters are kind of mirrored from each other. You know, they're they're super similar and not just in like their fighting style when they start sword fighting, but their character as a whole, like I said, Inigo is honorable and hardworking and respectful and you know, that's, that's completely Wesley's as well. They're both like the hero type character, you know, but one's a good guy, so-called, and one's a bad guy, which I think is so fun. Um, and I mean, it's, it, it gets even better when they start this super fun, intense fence match. Um, and you know, they're both playing with their left hand and then they both switch to their right hand. And it, I, I think that just plays out so perfectly how they're basically the same character, but on different sides. Um, of the story. I also love in this fencing match when they're, um, the, the sound, I didn't realize this. I, I guess I realized this the other times I watched it, but it didn't sink in as hard as this time, but how the, the music is really more sound effects. Like they, they use the music when they're like swinging on stuff, when he's nodding his head, shaking his head, all this stuff, more as sound effects than really as music. And I don't know. It, again, it plays to the whole silliness and family-friendly, wholesome part of the film. Uh, let's see. So we figure out that the Dread Pirate Roberts, quote-unquote, is Wesley, and we get to explore Buttercup's character a little bit more, which, honestly, I find Buttercup so annoying at the start, <laughs> which I think we're kind of supposed to. Like, she's just... She's kind of the... Well, she's not really like the damsel in distress who needs saving. She kind of becomes that later. But honestly, she's a pretty like strong female character um, in my mind, at least. She's confident and she's bold. She knows what she wants. Um, and obviously, she's very loving as well. Um, and we get to hear that kind of in her exchange with Wesley before she knows that he's Wesley. I, I get a little sad when we figure it out because... She kind of goes into that damsel in distress mode, which, I mean, it's fine. Obviously, it serves the purpose of that. I mean, that's the whole story. So it, it makes sense. But I, I wish that she would have a little more character <laughs> um, or at least a little more character development throughout the entire film. Um, but it, they enter into the fire swamp and the fire swamp is probably the most, I would say the most like cheesy part of the film. I guess the 
I mean, the quicksand and the fire is fun and everything, but this is where the time of the movie, I think, shows a little bit. Um, obviously, it came out in 87, and th there's very little CGI in this film, if any. I actually don't know if there's any. Hardly. Yeah, I don't know what exactly would be CGI'd, but the fire is definitely like an effect and the quicksand. <clears throat> and then the rodents of unusual size come on. And I mean, they just make me laugh a little bit. Something that I didn't know that I figured out while researching this film was that they're actually little people in costumes, the rodents of unusual size, which I thought was so funny um, and makes so much sense because I was always so confused as to what they actually were. <laughs> were they like animatronics or puppets or whatever? But um, no, they're actually people in costumes crawling around, which I thought was just kind of funny. So they get captured coming out of the fire swamp. This is when we really get introduced to Humperdinck and the Count, who are just, you know, they're the antagonists and they're just purely, purely evil people. Um, absolutely nothing to them besides being cruel and unkind and, and evil. Um, although, I mean, they're pretty funny as well. <laughs> Uh, but the entire movie is funny, so. Um, we also have this little, this random little, like, dream in, um, that Buttercup has, which I thought was always so weird that they included. Honestly, I don't really see the point, um, but we have the, the ancient booer, <laughs> which is just what she's credited as, as her character, which I think is so funny that that's her name. Um, but it's the lady who, the the old woman who is just booing buttercup in her dream um this part always scared me a little bit as a kid <laughs> uh, i don't know why it was just like it was just frightening and intense um but i, I thought it was a little random I, I still don't really see the point i guess we get a, a glimpse into buttercup's mind through this dream but i don't know this scene is just always a little random to me um but again like that's that's this film it doesn't give you context it doesn't give you reason for anything it's just this is the story and this is this is it. Um, we have the same thing when we go into um, down into the pit of despair with Wesley. Like we have the machine, quote unquote. But what does the machine do? We don't know. It it tortures you somehow, and it looks like it hurts um, from the amazing performance that Carrie Elwes gives us. But yeah, um, the pit of despair is super interesting because. Up until this point, we haven't seen Wesley show a single sign of weakness. Not, not anything. I mean, he gets, he gets like bitten by the rat of unusual, the rodent of unusual size. Um, and like that hurts obviously, but we don't show him, see him show emotional weakness or anything like that, mental weakness at all. Um, even in his encounter with Vincini, like obviously he's on top the entire time. So when he gets tortured here in the pit of despair, um, he cries after. And I think that scene is so, so important just to see him like, this is the one time that we see him break down and to see like, really appreciate like everything that he's done for Buttercup at this point. Cause I mean, up until now, he's just been the perfect, the absolute perfect hero who can do no wrong and who is just like, going through life like like nothing nothing can harm him but um here when we see him cry obviously you know that means that he's he's working really hard and he actually really cares for buttercup and i, I don't know it's just it, it's a good 
a good way to show that he's a multifaceted character um, from just one scene. So uh, I love that scene. I think it's really powerful. Um, let's see. So, I mean, so much happens in the middle there where we we get a glimpse into Humperdinck's character as well as the Count's character a little more. But again, there's nothing to them except that they're pure evil. Like the Count is a mad scientist who loves pain. And we also figure out that he is completely merciless because he's the one who killed Inigo's father as well. Um, Wesley is tortured beyond beyond belief and supposedly dies. Um, and this is when Inigo and Fezzik come back into the story. Um, and I mean, now it just really confirms our suspicions that they were good guys. You know, we kind of had that at the start just by showing them showing us their character but now it's actually it's actually confirmed that they're on they're on our side now um and that's when we get to the miracle max and have the amazing amazing cameo of billy crystal and karen carol kane who are just comedic geniuses i mean everything their dry humor their delivery i don't know what lines were improvised supposedly some lines were improvised um the whole thing could be improvised for all i know or all i care it's so funny all of it um it's great i don't know what part of it is from the book or not but it's i mean it's it's perfect so quotable it's hilarious and it also um one of the lines that carol kane gives um is talking she's talking about how like noble of a cause true love is for fighting fighting for and I mean, that that's really the whole point of the movie, isn't it? That I feel like we forget sometimes that the whole, the whole plot is based upon this quote-unquote true love that comes from, from Wesley and Buttercup. Um, and I, I mean, I really like how in this film they show that ev- almost every character has at least one line where they, they confirm that true love is something worth fighting for. Um, or they confirm that true love is a good thing. Even Humperdinck, when he goes into the pit of despair to torture Wesley, talks about like, oh, true love is the greatest thing, um, but you're going to suffer because it's it, because it's the greatest thing, you know? So I, I don't know. I really like that, how every single character ta- talks about true love in the same way, which shows us that, like, we're we're still supposed to be rooting for the good guys you know um there's absolutely no there's no gray character in this in this movie which i think is kind of funny because i think a lot of modern films now are like built on these gray characters we don't know whether we're supposed to like them dislike them um who we're supposed to be rooting for you know so i really like it's black and white in this one which i think is definitely due to the time it came out but um also just due to the story you know it's a it's a family it's a kid's story it's a family story i think generally in kids movies you want you want it to be a little more black and white than for you know than for adults when they can kind of think for themselves um so we get from miracle max go over to storming the castle um, we have this hilarious scene with Wesley not being able to move for himself. Again, such a good performance by Carrie Elwes. I don't know if you guys have ever, like, 
if you've ever tried to act like you can't move your limbs, it's actually really hard um, to pretend like you are helpless, like to not randomly move something or or anything like that. So I, this is, it's so genius. Um, and again, we have the music coming as sound effects, like when Fezzik is nodding his head, the music goes with it and everything, which just adds to the silliness. And um, yeah, I, I love that part. I think it's so funny. So we get to storming into the castle and this is when, at least I find like we switch from being invested to the main story and we get to the sub, like the subplot of Inigo and his whole revenge story. And this revenge story is so interesting to me because most of the time when when there is revenge in a book or a film, in any story, it's hard to, at least I find it hard to root for the person who's doing the avenging. Like, revenge is generally known as, like, not a great thing, you know? Usually, I mean, the, like, revenge is something that a bad guy, that an antagonist is going for. They're like, I, I want revenge and that's why this is pushing me. Um, as humans, generally, we all know that forgiveness or mercy or nobility, all this stuff is better than revenge and should be sought after over revenge. But in this wholesome, family-friendly story, we have this revenge side story. Um, and I think the way that they have portrayed the characters helps us to be rooting for Inigo the entire time. Um, we don't get that much into the story of the Count, like we don't get his backstory or anything, um, but we do know that he has zero redeeming qualities. You know, he, he just loves pain, he is completely merciless against Inigo's father, um, and all all of that like he he's not sympathetic at all and I think this is really what helps us to not root for for him in any way you know when a bad guy is sympathetic like for example like Thanos in the Avengers he just wants like he just wants peace on earth and that's why that's what's driving him and so you, sometimes you can see it from his perspective and again that comes back to the whole like modern day gray characters um you know everyone is good in their own way everyone is bad in their own way that sort of thing but in this story the count is simply simply just evil and inigo is eliminating the the evil person and that right there takes it from a revenge story to a justice story um in our minds and so i think that's why it's so easy to root for Inigo and I also think that in this scene where he is the this whole fight scene with him and the count which okay wait side note Inigo gets stabbed in the abdomen with a knife and he just pulls the, <laughs> pulls it right out um if you're just a tip if you ever get a knife to the abdomen um don't pull it out <laughs> like the the knife is holding pressure 
on your organs. And if you pull it out, all the pressure is going to be released and all the blood's going to come gushing out. And that's when you're going to bleed out. Sorry to get graphic, but just a quick survival tip. Like don't, don't pull it, pull the knife out, <laughs> leave it in there. Anyways, this scene where he's fighting the count is when he really goes from like just a side character to like the people's hero. Like he becomes like Wesley might be the hero of the story, but Inigo is the hero of the audience, in my opinion. Um, and that's why, you know, his infamous line is so quotable and why everyone loves it, loves it so much. So then we're, I mean, we're nearing the end of the film. We get to the main monologue, which honestly I find a little disappointing that, I don't know if anyone else found this disappointing because we had Inigo's big fight scene. Um, but there's no fight scene between Humperdinck and Wesley. It's just words. And Wesley comes in with this incredible stinging monologue that absolutely destroys Humperdinck. He's so lame. He doesn't, he's not even worthy of a, <laughs> of a big sword fight. Um, and this, this monologue that Carrie Elwes gives us is so good. Um, I don't know, obviously it's cut in the movie, but it seems like it's just one giant zoom shot. And this is an almost two minute monologue where Carrie Elwes doesn't blink and does not move his gaze for the entire monologue, which I think is incredible. Again, so difficult to do um, and such a great piece of acting because whenever you're trying to portray someone who's confident, um, like, for example, Robert Downey Jr. does this as Iron Man all the time. Captain America does this. Um, whenever you're trying to portray a character as confident, a fixed, unblinking gaze is one of the best ways to do it. Um, if you ever want to portray a character as being uncertain or insecure, um, actors will oftentimes blink a lot and will jump from eye to eye uh, to whoever they're talking, whoever they're talking with, whoever their scene partner is. So... Yeah, just a genius pe genius piece of acting here by Carrie Elwes. I think he's, uh, as far as acting goes, him and Mandy Patinkin really kind of steal the show. Um, and Billy Crystal, of course. <laughs> so, you know, we have this stinging monologue that puts Humperdinck in his place. And that's the end of the film. They ride off horses into the sunset. Um, and we have our audience surrogate, the grandson, coming back to confirm, you know, everything that that we've been thinking they didn't they jump between the grandson and the the story pretty often at the start of the film but at the second half of the film they really don't do it often and I think that's to not take you out of the story um but when we get thrust back into it with the grandson back to real life uh I think we all noticed like how enthralled we were in the film and how invested we were in the story um and then it comes back to obviously the the kissing scene and how it's it's not that bad and you know he's he's saying everything that we're thinking um which is why i love him so much so that's the end of the film and he at the, the you know the very last the very last line the grinson says grandpa maybe you can come back and read it again sometime um and that's when the grandpa says as you wish and i i think they set it up so perfectly for someone to to want to come back and watch the film again so that's the princess bride and um i hope you guys learned 
uh, learned a thing or two maybe about the audience surrogate or about portraying likable versus unlikable characters. Um, and also, I uh, I hope you learned that, you know, nothing can stop true love because that's the main the main point of the movie, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but I hope you guys enjoyed listening. I would love to hear your thoughts on the film as well. Um, so you can let me know, like I said, via DM or a comment on YouTube. You can follow The Movie Mindset on Instagram, um, on YouTube, or here on Spotify as well. Um, yeah, and if you want to vote on which movie that we analyze next, um, that'll be on Instagram as well. So tune in next Monday for another episode. Until then, bye!